I invite you at this time to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. We'll be considering verses 1 through 21 this evening. Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 21. You recall last week we saw the birth of John the Baptist, this long-awaited forerunner to the Messiah, who was born to Elizabeth despite her barrenness, despite her old age. And now we get to this climactic point in this section of Luke where this Virgin Mary gives birth to the Messiah, the one uh, to whom Jews and Christians had been waiting centuries uh, for to come. So I invite you to turn your attention to the reading of God's word at this time. Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 21. Hear now the word of the Lord. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration from Quirinius, who was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went out from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Well, what is the gospel? As we celebrate this week yet another Christmas, as we read once again this Christmas story, which I'm sure most of us have heard and read countless of times, what is the gospel? That is, what what was the chief purpose of Jesus coming into this world? Was it to bring you good feelings? 
great joy, a sense of fill, fulfillment and purpose? Was it, was it to bring you psychological and material blessing? What is the gospel? I think it's an important question for us to consider as this word is used very, very often in our day and age. There's gospel-centered this, gospel-centered that. You can just about fill in the blank. But this word, sadly, is, is oftentimes misunderstood. So what is the gospel? Well, as you may have noticed, these last few weeks we have been considering various ways in which celebrating the season of Advent can be helpful for us in our Christian life. And I want to continue that this evening as we consider not only how the season of Advent can be helpful, but also Christmas itself can be helpful for us in our Christian lives. And another way in which uh, these things are helpful for us is it reminds us that the gospel is not about us. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's about Christ. The gospel is about Jesus Christ. This very important reality to be reminded of. So this evening, I want us to focus on that basic point, the centrality of Christ to this gospel message. Now, of course, this, this won't be an exhaustive, exhaustive study of, of, of this theme, but I hope we can see and appreciate anew the Christ-centered nature of the gospel, and even more specifically, how Jesus' birth is essential to this gospel message that we profess to believe in. Now, as I, as I said, we, the gospel is not about us, first and foremost. But that's not to say that we're irrelevant. We just have to know our place, and I hope we can see that as well. Therefore, as we consider the centrality of Christ, the centrality of Christ to this gospel message, the coming of Christ, which we will be celebrating this week, I want us to focus our hearts and minds on uh, three main points this evening. I want us to consider how how the gospel includes Jesus' humanity. The gospel includes Jesus' humanity. How the gospel is for the church And lastly, our response to the gospel. So first, the gospel includes Jesus' humanity. Well, we begin this passage by reading that Caesar Augustus is ruling at this time, and he's calling for this registration. This registration, which uh, was a census, this likely was for tax purposes. And Joseph, who was uh, engaged to Mary was reporting to Bethlehem. So this tells us that, that Joseph, uh, Joseph's ancestral lineage is, is from Bethlehem. Right? He's of the line of the house of David. He likely was, was living in Nazareth, but the Jewish custom was for Jews to report their ancestral city. And that's why they're going up, Joseph and Mary, to the city of Bethlehem. And this is an important note. Right? Joseph is of the line and the lineage of David. And this is where Jesus gets his lineage, his Davidic lineage from. Now, of course, Joseph, Joseph isn't Jesus' natural father, but he's his legal father, and therefore he can claim, and he does claim, his Davidic lineage, these Bethlehem roots. So this is, this is that context 
for our passage, and then we continue to read that while they were in Bethlehem, at the end of verse 6, the time came for Mary to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. So this, the context of, of Mary giving birth was likely in a stable. Now the stable may have, been, may have been in a wooden structure, but it also may have been in a cave. It was quite common during this time for stables to be located in, in caves, and this manger was a feeding trough. They f- couldn't find any sort of guest room, public shelter, or inn, and so they find this, cable st- this stable in a cave and a feeding trough as a manger. Consider this for a moment. Talk about underwhelming. As one pastor said, this is the biggest understatement of all time. This is the Messiah whom Jews had been waiting thousands of years to come. And the context, the setting is a stable, a a feeding trough. And we might expect a palace, but a, a feeding trough? Ordinary clothes? A seemingly ordinary baby? But I think we are set up for this context already in Luke chapter 1. If you recall that announcement by Gabriel to this obscure young teenage girl virgin of the name Mary in this lowly regarded town of Nazareth, and it was this girl who was going to bear the Messiah. I think we're already set up for a less than spectacular setting for the birth of this long-awaited king of the line of David. But the fact that Jesus, like these details, right, that Jesus was, was wrapped in swaddling cloths, that he was laid in a feeding trough, this shows us his humanity. Yes, Jesus was, was sinless. He didn't take part in the guilt of Adam's first sin. He was sinless, but apart from his sinlessness, he was like us in every way. He was like us in every way, sin accepted. Therefore, we shouldn't blush as we read this, this text, how Jesus came as a baby who needed to be fed and nursed from his mother Mary as he was wrapped in ordinary cloth, laid in a trough. We shouldn't blush. This shows us Jesus' humanity. They took upon himself a real human nature. Yes, this is the eternal Son of God, but this eternal Son of God took upon himself a real human nature. So what's the connection? What's the connection between Jesus' humanity, which we see here in our text, and the gospel? Why is this important? Well, in verses 8 through 10, we see that Jesus' birth itself is part of the gospel. It reveals the gospel. So if you look with me at at verse verse 8... Uh, we read about these shepherds. And it says, in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord.
you can focus your attention on, on verse 10. The angel of the Lord explicitly says that Jesus' birth is good news. I bring you good news. Good news of great joy. Now this word that is used in the original Greek manuscript is the word, the verb, for preaching the gospel. The same word is used throughout Paul's epistles and rendered to proclaim, to preach the gospel. So really you could say that this angel is bringing, proclaiming the gospel. The gospel of Jesus' birth. You may ask, well, why exactly was it necessary for Jesus to come to this earth with a human nature? Why was the incarnation needed? Couldn't God just have saved us, wiped away our sins, without going through this huge step of sending his son to this earth and doing what he did? Well, if you are only considering the mercy and the grace of Christ, it may seem plausible, plausible for God to just to to look the other way when it comes to our sin. But God's not just merciful. He's not just gracious. He is just He is a just God. And his justice requires that the same human nature which has sinned needs to make payment for that sin. So if we're going to have someone to save us, we need someone who is like us. We need that same human nature which has sinned to make the payment for our sin. Because God's a just God. He can't just look the other way at sin. That would make him unjust. And what a terrifying thought to have an unjust God. And this is precisely why Jesus had to come in our likeness. One of the, church, one of the early church fathers, Gregory of Nazianzus, has a, a very helpful phrase with regard to this point. He said, regarding Jesus' coming to this earth, what is not assumed by Jesus is not redeemed. What is not assumed by Jesus is not redeemed because of the justice of God. Christ had to come like us the same human nature that we have. He had to come with a body. He had to come with a soul because we need our bodies redeemed. We need our souls redeemed. We need our human nature redeemed. This is Paul's logic. You read 1 Corinthians 15. Our hope of a future bodily resurrection depends and hangs on the balance that Christ had a body which was resurrected. Philippians chapter 3 Paul says that our hope is that we will have bodies on the last day that will be transformed in the very likeness of Christ's body. So our redemption hinges upon the fact that Christ came like us in every way except for sin. Therefore, brothers and sisters, this teaches us that the gospel is first and foremost not about, it's not about me, it's not about you, it's not something that, that you or I live. It's about Jesus Christ. It's something that he alone lived. The gospel is every aspect of Christ's life that he had to do in order to save us. It's his birth. It's his life of righteousness. It's his death on the cross. It's his resurrection from the dead. It's his ascension into heaven, him being seated at the right hand of God. That is the gospel. It's objective. It's historical. It's outside of you and I. And this is where our assurance is found. In what Christ has done for us in history to save us. 
So Jesus' birth, Jesus' birth reveals his humanity, and his humanity is absolutely essential to our salvation, to our gospel, uh, to, to, to the gospel. Therefore, we need it. We needed a Jesus who was wrapped in swaddling clothes. We needed a Jesus who was laid in a feeding trough. We needed a Jesus who had a real and true human nature. So if the gospel is first and foremost about Christ, him coming to this earth, and he needed to come to to this earth like us in order to make his, his life of righteousness effective for us, his death effective for us, because if he's not like us in every way, he's not going to be able to to accomplish God's law for us, die for us. So if this gospel is about Christ, who is this gospel for then? Who is Christ doing this for? This leads us to my second point, that the gospel is is for the church. The gospel is for the church. In verse 10, we read that this good news of great joy, this good news of great joy is for all the people. It's for all the people. Now, this phrase, the people, again, in the, in the original manuscript, is used two other times in Luke chapter 1. I think it's very, um, very insightful into the meaning of this phrase. For example, in chapter 160, uh, verse 68, Mary's Magnificent, uh, we see that God has redeemed his people, right? His people, his covenant people. And then in, chap- in verse 77, we see that God has given knowledge of salvation to his people, these are the people of God, the covenant people of God. In the original context, this is referring to the Jews who had the temple, the Old Testament, the promises, the word of God. And if you translate that into the language of, of the new covenant, the epistles, this is the church. This is the, uh, not only the, the olive shoot of, of the Jews, but also the Gentiles who've been grafted in. Jew and Gentile alike. This is the church of, of Jesus Christ. Now you may be thinking, well, isn't the gospel for everybody? Isn't it for unbelievers? Isn't it for the world? Yes, that's true. And the, the Bible repeats that throughout in many, many places. But this text also reminds that the gospel is for the church. And I think sometimes we forget that. We sometimes think that the gospel is for everybody else. You know, it's for the unbelievers. It's for our world but it's not really for us. It's not for professing Christians. It's not for the church of Jesus Christ. And this reminds us that the gospel, this good news, is for us. It's for the Christians, for the church as well. For instance, I think sometimes we can think that the gospel is, is, is for conversion. It gets us into the game of the Christian life. And then once we are in the Christian life, all we really need is law. We need to know how to have a better marriage, how to be better parents, how to be better leaders at work. We need the law. You know, the gospel is just for the the elementary Christians. It's it's to get people into the church. But once you're in, you don't really need it anymore. We are reminded here that, no, we never graduate from the gospel. We need the gospel just as much as Christians, as, as unbelievers need it. I find it very instructive. In Romans 1, Paul, in his introduction, he he, he is, is writing to this church in Rome. So this is a professing, a group of professing Christians and their children. 
And he's saying that he's looking forward, he's eager to come to them in person so that he might preach the gospel to those in Rome, to the church in Rome. Paul clearly recognizes that the gospel, yes, it's for the unbelievers, but it's for the church. It's for the church. Because the gospel is not only the power of God unto salvation, but the gospel is also the power of God unto sanctification. The gospel is what motivates and empowers every good work in our life. Our entire life of sanctification, of growth into the image of our Lord Jesus Christ. And as a church plant, this is what we desire our identity to be, to be a church that proclaims the gospel of, our, of Jesus Christ, not only for, for unbelievers, but for every person who comes to our services. I hope you've noticed by this point how our liturgy, our order of worship, is filled with the gospel. It's not just in our preaching, the ministry of the word through the sermon, but we have it at the beginning with God's blessing. We are reminded at the very beginning of, of our time of worship that God is not our judge. He is our Father, and he's welcoming us as his children through Jesus Christ. We're reminded of the gospel in the declaration of pardon. As we confess our sins and recognize that we are by nature sinners, our sin doesn't come from the, you know, the, the bad influences of society. No, we are by nature, in our mother's womb, sinners, guilty in Adam. And therefore, we confess our sins and hear the good news of what Christ has done in his life, death, and resurrection. The benediction, as we go out into another week, we are sent off with this blessing of God that only comes to us through the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. The sacraments, later on in this service, we will see the gospel made visible in water. In water, as uh, baptism is not primarily our pledge to God, our oath to God, it's God's promise, his pledge to his people. That upon the condition of faith, which is wrought by the Spirit of God, he will indeed wash our hearts clean through the blood of Christ, as certainly as our bodies are washed with water. Brothers and sisters, the same gospel that you're hearing with your ears right now is the same gospel that you will see with your eyes in the waters of baptism. We need this gospel. This is where our identity as Christians are found, is found. We need, the gospel is, is unnatural to us. We go out into our, our week and we are confronted with the law. Do this and you shall live. Our society is a do this and you shall live structure. Our hearts have the law of God written upon us, condemning us, accusing us. The gospel that says the one who does not work but believes, receives a free gift of justification, that's unnatural to us. We don't know that by nature. That's why we need the gospel. We need the gospel spoken to us, preached to us. That is what forms the basis of our identity. Well, notice in verse 12, the angel continues speaking uh, to the shepherds. And he says, and this will be a sign so they're about to go and find uh, Joseph and Mary and this baby Jesus. He says, this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. Well, think about this for a moment. The, these shepherds, right, they probably knew their Old Testament well. 
They recognize that this is the one, Christ, the Savior, the Lord of the line of David, the one whom the people of God have been waiting centuries for to come. And what's the sign of this gospel? What's the sign that this is, that you found the baby Jesus? Swaddling clothes, a stable cave, a feeding trough. Again, talk about underwhelming. (laughs) I'm sure that their initial impression would be, okay, I, I, I can see a palace, but a lowly cave, a dirty feeding trough for the king of the line of David? This is the last thing from flashy, the last thing from uh, culturally relevant in that day and age. So we see the paradoxical nature of the gospel. Christ didn't come according to the people's expectations. Well, similarly, where do we find the gospel today? What what are the signs of, of, of where the gospel is found? was found in the context of the local church. It's found through the preaching of the word, the sacraments. This is not flashy. This is not culturally relevant. This will not appease or or impress the rulers of our age, just as it didn't impress the rulers of Paul's age, the Greeks, the orators. But this is where the gospel is found, and this gospel is for us. Well, this gospel, which we've seen, is fundamentally about Christ and what he did in history. But we also see that this, we're not irrelevant. This gospel is for us. But we also see that as the recipients of the gospel, we are called to respond to this gospel. We are called to respond to this gospel. And so I want us to focus, lastly, on our response to the gospel. What should our response to the gospel be? This will be my third and and final point, our response to the gospel. The gospel calls for a response. It's objective, it's historical, and it, it needs to be reckoned with. And it calls us to respond. And we see a number of responses in our text, which I think we can learn from. Uh, so first we see the shepherd's response. So again, the shepherds, they hurry to Bethlehem to try to find Mary and, and Joseph and baby Jesus. In verse 17 we read, and when they, saw, when they saw Jesus, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. They relayed what the angel of the Lord had told them about this baby. He's the long-awaited Christ, the Lord, the Savior. And there are likely more people here than just this family, this small family of of Mary and Joseph and this child. There likely was somewhat of a sizable crowd there. I think this is a good example of of lay testimony or what Peter says, uh, giving, giving a reason for the hope that lies within us. Notice the shepherds, they heard this message, this word, this saying from the angel, this good news of the birth of Jesus, And what do they do? They go to this crowd, and what what do they say? Do they talk about this great experience, this, this, this great feeling of joy and fulfillment that Jesus has brought into their life that may have been present? But no, they say the word, the saying, they say the objective work and nature of who this Jesus is. This baby is Christ, the Lord, the Savior. They speak a message. Brothers and sisters, that's what people need to hear. 
people first and foremost don't need to hear about our experiences. That may be a byproduct of the gospel, but that does not save. People can find experiences in partaking in anything in this life. What people need to hear is the objective historical message of the gospel that demands a response. That Christ came into this world and lived and died and rose again. And what will you do in response? In verse 18, uh, we see the crowd's response. So this crowd that had gathered there, they, we read that they, were, they marveled. Um, verse 18 says, And all who heard it wondered or marveled at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things in her heart. So Luke might be setting up a contrast here between the response of, of these individuals, this crowd who, who, who marveled or wondered, and, and the response of Mary. This may tell us that this crowd... They liked the story. They thought it was interesting. They marveled. They wondered. But they didn't really have faith. They didn't respond as Mary responded. I think this is instructive for us. Many, many people this time of year like the Christmas story. They like the nativity scene. It brings them good feelings. It's, it's associated with good memories. You know, they, they marvel at it. But they don't believe. So brothers and sisters, this, this Christmas season, we can't just wonder, marvel like the story of Jesus, we need to respond with faith. We need to respond with faith. And now we see Mary's response uh, to the full realization of, of who this baby is that she has just given birth to. And verse 19 says, but Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. How did Mary treasure the birth of Christ, the gospel message? Well, she pondered it. That's the manner in which she treasured it. She, she treasured the gospel by pondering it, meditating upon it, thinking upon it. That's how we treasure the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, the birth of Christ. We, we ponder it. We think about it often. We meditate upon it. As I just got done saying, we don't just need the gospel at the beginning of our life. We don't just need it on the Lord's Day. We need it every single day. We need to preach it to ourselves every single day. We need to be reminded of it every single day. Because as I mentioned, this is where our identity is found as Christians. But this message is completely unnatural to us. So we need to remind ourselves that we are children of God. On the basis of Christ's free work of salvation on our behalf. And then lastly, in verse 20, we see a, the second response of the shepherds. As the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And not only do we see the, the shepherds praising God for this, this good news that's been announced to them, we also saw back in verse 14 this heavenly host glorifying God, praising God for this event that has just happened. So we see another response, proper response to the gospel is praise. Praise. Praise to God for this, this good news that we have received. I'm sure we've all experienced it from uh, when, we, when we're getting to know someone, right? We're asking them questions, and 
eventually you, you stumble upon a subject and that person just starts talking, right? You, you struck a chord with them. And they just go off talking for, for a long time on this subject. You realize you found out what they're passionate about. You found out what they care about, what's important to them. Therefore, I think a good litmus test to, to whether we truly recognize the goodness of this good news, of the birth of Christ, is, is it on our lips often? Do we talk about it often? Do we, are our prayers filled with praise to God for this good news that we have received freely by his grace? So we are to praise God for this gospel. Therefore, the responses we see here are, are giving testimony giving testimony when opportunities arise, believing it with true faith, meditating upon it, praising God for it. Brothers and sisters, as we celebrate the birth of this Savior, who is wrapped in swaddling cloths, who is is put in, in a feeding trough, as we celebrate the birth of Jesus, let us never forget the good news of this gospel message, which saves sinners like you and like like me. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for sending your son into this world in the likeness of, of, of humanity to save us who are sinners. We thank you for this good news. We ask that you would shape us and form us by this this free salvation that has been given to us. We ask all these things in the name of our only Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.